You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, re rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Good morning. As Gary mentioned, my name's Matt Quintana. It's my pleasure to be with you this morning and to preach God's word to you. Um, I've been, been very thankful to be given this opportunity and for Gary to have poured into me for a couple of years now and trained me as uh, one day, Lord willing, when I grow up, I do hope to be a pastor. So I'm very thankful for this opportunity. Uh, I need God's help. So would you please pray with me? Father of grace and mercy, we thank you for this day that we can gather together as your people in worship. We ask you that by your spirit, you would open up your word to us. Would you grant us eyes to see and ears to hear the glorious truth which it reveals? We thank you for this precious word, the holy scriptures which you have given to us so that we might be equipped to endure persecution, to live righteously, and to know what is true about you. Help us to respond rightly to your word, and help me, Father, to speak what is true. We pray all of this for your glory. In the name of your beloved Son, amen. This summer, we have started a series we're calling Transform, Not Conformed, Truth for Life in the Present Age. This series aims to help harvest, live out our identity as God's people, as the church, in the midst of a sinful world. By being transformed rather than conformed, we will seek to have our minds renewed and to become more like Christ. The key verse for the series from which we get the title is Romans 12, 1 through 2. It'll be up on the screen. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. Unless we are being transformed by the renewal of our minds, we will inevitably become more like the world. How then are we, as the church, to live lives of worship, to become more like Jesus, and to know what is the will of God? Are we left on our own in a world that is so hostile to the truth of Christianity, trying to figure out how we are to live? With complex topics like politics and sexuality and religious pluralism and abortion, things that we're talking about in this series, are we just on our own to try and decide what to do? 2 Timothy 3.10 through 4.5, our passage for today, answers this question for us. Here's the main point of this text, our truth statement for today. God's divinely inspired word is sufficient for providing what we need to endure suffering, live righteously, and know what is true. Before we get into the text, it will be helpful to explain real quick what I hope to accomplish. First, we will work our way through the passage, examine what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy. We will look at what this passage means. Again, the main point of the passage, the truth statement, which is on the screen, I'll repeat again. God's divinely inspired word is sufficient for providing what we need to endure suffering, live righteously, and know what is true. Then we'll circle back around and consider how we are to respond to this meaning, how we are to apply it within our lives. We'll look particularly at how this passage fits within the scope of this current sermon series, which I mentioned, and how it helps us to live out our identity as the church, becoming transformed, not conformed. Our passage today comes from the book of 2 Timothy, as I've mentioned. This was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his co-worker, Timothy, while he was imprisoned in Rome. At this point, Paul was on trial. He was awaiting execution, and thus 2 Timothy functions as a last will and testament of sorts as the aging apostle pins what may have very well been his final words to his dear child in the faith. In the book, Paul illustrates what it looks like to live a faithful and godly life. One of the primary themes is suffering and persecution. Paul has suffered deeply on account of the gospel. He exhorts Timothy to follow the example that he has provided and to faithfully endure the persecution which will come his way. Another emphasis within 2 Timothy is on what Paul refers to as sound doctrine or the truth or the good deposit. In contrast to the false teaching that was being circulated within Ephesus where Timothy was located, Paul charges Timothy to remain faithful to the truth revealed in the scriptures and to pass it on to others. Though this letter was originally sent to Timothy, it was also intended to speak to the Christians whom Timothy was leading. And as Christian scripture, it speaks to us today. It is applicable to our lives, and it is certainly relevant. So as we begin the first paragraph of our passage, Paul has just wrapped up a longer section in which he details the characteristics of these false teachers who will come. In fact, they have already appeared, and Timothy Timothy is facing them. He lists off nearly 20 attributes of these false teachers, summarizing by saying that they are people who, in 3.8, oppose the truth, are corrupted in mind, and disqualified regarding the faith. In 3.10 through 11, Paul uh, paints a vivid contrast between Timothy and these false teachers. If you look in verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. 
all of these items in this list set Paul and Timothy apart from the ungodly heretics that he was facing. Timothy is closely followed to these things, meaning that he has had knowledge of them, he has affirmed them, and he's even sought to imitate them. With this list, Paul encourages his protege to continue following his pattern. In the next verses 12 and 13, Paul clarifies that he will not be the only one who endures suffering and persecution. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, how is that for a biblical promise? This is nothing new, of course, for Paul has said this before, and Jesus himself mentioned this many times in his ministry. On the other hand, the false teachers, those who are wicked and ungodly, they will not face persecution. They will grow increasingly worse. The irony is that while these teachers deceive others, they, in fact, are equally deceived and held captive to the lies which they spew. We will return later to the topic of suffering and persecution, but for now, we must note the clear line that Paul is drawing between true and false believers. According to this verse, a Christian is one who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Therefore, a believer should be someone who is characterized by living a life that is in Jesus and by a resolve to live a life that is in combination of authentic faith in God and appropriate behavior. This lifestyle is in stark opposition to those who, as Paul says in 3.5, have denied the power of true godliness. In verses 14 and 15, we begin to get into the heart of this passage. Just as in verse 10, Paul grabs our attention with, but as for you, again, creating a chasm between Timothy and these false teachers. The main point here is the imperative or the command, continue. Unlike the false teachers who constantly endeavor to advance something new, Timothy is to be satisfied with what he has already received. Paul gives him an order to remain faithful to what he has learned, but not only that, what he has firmly believed or become convinced of. The basis of this confidence Timothy is to have is twofold. First, he knows from whom he has learned it. The whom here is plural. It refers not only to Paul, but also to all the others who have taught Timothy, including his grandmother and his mother, who Paul mentions back in chapter 1. The character of teachers closely reflects the character of what is taught. And since Timothy knows those who have taught him, he may rest assured that he has not been deceived. The second reason Timothy is to have confidence in what he believes is that he knows the sacred writings, his knowledge of which reaches back to his childhood. He was raised on the teaching of scriptures. The second reason qualifies the first for the teaching Paul and others have passed on to him is true ultimately because it is in agreement with the scriptures. The term here, sacred writings, that Paul uses, it refers to the Hebrew Bible, what we often call the Old Testament. And the comment that he makes about the Hebrew Scriptures is extremely significant. I want us to, to see this. If you know me well or if you uh, talk to me about my studies, you know that I absolutely love the Old Testament. And I prefer to call it the Hebrew Bible. What Paul says here about it is one of the reasons that I love it so much. Look at verse 15 with me. He says that these writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Consider with me the implications of this. Paul is saying that the Hebrew Scriptures on their own possess an innate ability to instruct or lead one to salvation. 
That is deliverance from sin and eternal life in Jesus Christ. The scriptures themselves do not save. Rather, they point to the one who does, Jesus, the Messiah. Paul is clear there's only one way to salvation. He says, faith in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament teaches this. If we are reading it rightly, we will come away understanding that we must put our hope in the future coming messianic king who was to come from the line of David to rescue his people, inaugurate his kingdom, and one day restore all of creation. The Old Testament is literally about Jesus. We must recognize this. The first four-fifths of our Bible is not dispensable. We can't do away with it. It is an integral piece to the story of God's master plan to redeem humanity. Without it, our faith is seriously lacking. There are false teachers today, like Andy Stanley, who suggest that the Hebrew Bible is outdated. It's uh, irrelevant. It's a stumbling block to people who would actually want to know Jesus I've never heard a more absurd idea. We need the Hebrew Bible. Friends, read the Old Testament and behold the Savior. These next verses, 16 and 17, are just as incredible as the last. Look at me, if you will. Look, look with me, if you will, at verse 16. Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed out. By God. This text is fundamental to our view of the Bible. From it, we draw what is called the doctrine of inspiration. Paul is telling us here something about the nature of the Bible that we cannot afford to miss. The scripture is God breathed or inspired by God. Before we can further tease out what this means, we must decide what Paul intends by the phrase all scripture. Verse 16 says, all scripture is God-breathed, meaning every scripture. That is, every individual text or passage of scripture. No part of scripture is unaccounted for here. Every single verse, every single book, every single chapter, all of it is God-breathed or inspired. The, the nature of the text as inspired applies evenly throughout the Bible. What about the word Scripture. Well, it's obvious that Paul here still has in mind the sacred writings that he mentioned a verse earlier, so the Old Testament. But it's also important that we see by the phrase, all Scripture, Paul is including the New Testament. Within the New Testament itself, it is clear that the subsequent writings of Jesus' apostles and followers are on par with the sacred writings of the Old Testament. Paul views his teaching as authoritative and from God, and it's because of this that he can charge Timothy, continue in what you have learned from me. The books that make up the Bible were not just chosen at random by a group of men. They are in the Bible because they possess the inherent quality of inspiration or of God's breath. Now here I'm just scratching the surface of a very important topic. Uh, in fact, last year I taught a three-week class on Sunday nights titled How We Got the Bible. It dove into a lot more of this. It's online if you're interested, and I'd love to answer any questions you may have about this. So, by all scripture, Paul means the entirety of the Christian Bible. Every single word, every single verse of the 66 books which make up the canon of scripture. Let's return now to what it means for the scripture to be 
God breathed. In this verse, Paul uses a word that he likely created himself. He takes the word for God and a verb meaning to breathe or to blow, and he combines them, creates a word, applies it to Scripture, and says all Scripture is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God. We find this concept of God's creative breath all throughout the Bible, beginning in the first pages of Genesis where the Spirit is hovering over the waters and God creates all things through his creative and powerful speech and breath. So when it comes to the Bible, God has used his creative spirit to bring the contents alive. It is directly derived from God. One of the most common objections you hear to the Bible today is that, oh, it's just a book written by men. It's a human book. According to 2 Timothy 3.16, this could not be further from the truth. The words of the Bible have authority, not because they are simply the words of men, but because they are the words of God. This is why we often refer to the Bible as the word of God, because that is what it is. God has chosen to reveal himself not only in nature and in creation, but supremely through written and spoken language in a book, in this book. The Bible was written in human languages and through human beings, but because God has guided along this process and breathed into the words themselves, they can truly and accurately be called his words. Every single word in this book that I have, is from God. We don't get to choose which ones we like and which ones we don't. This means that the ceremonial cleansing laws in the middle of Leviticus are just as inspired as your favorite psalm. The long list of genealogies in the beginning of Chronicles is just as God-breathed and therefore important as the Gospel of Mark or any one of Paul's letters. Now, I realize we just spent quite a bit of time unpacking only a few words, but they are that important. If the Bible contains the words of the sovereign, eternal, triune God, and it does, then the ramifications cannot be overstated. It is for this reason that Paul mentions Scripture's inspiration in the first place. Paul uses the fact that the Bible has God as its source, as the platform for his argument that Scripture is useful or profitable, which is, in fact, the bigger idea he's trying to get across here. Because Scripture comes from God, it is therefore true. And because it is true, it is therefore useful. But what is it useful for? Paul lists four things, and they are each significant. First of all, Scripture is useful for teaching. This first use is the broadest. It, in a sense, encompasses all of the others. God's Word teaches Christians what is true, and thus it is useful for our instruction. Second, the Bible is profitable for reproof or refuting or convicting. The idea here is that God's Word exposes. It produces self-awareness of sin and exposes our shortcomings It also displays what is false, refuting lies with the truth. The scriptures, therefore, reveal where we are misguided in both faith and in practice. Third, God's word is beneficial for correcting. If the last use was more negative, this one is more positive, aiming at the goal of recovery. The Bible points us back on the right course, and it shows us what is good. 
Finally, the God-breathed scripture is valuable for training in righteousness. It prepares and schools us in living lives that are upright and pleasing to God. The Bible is effective for imparting believers with an ethical and Christ-centered framework for life in this world. Now, surely Paul could have said more about what Scripture is useful and effective for, but now he moves on to the so what of his reminder about Scripture's supreme value. If you look at verse 17 with me, here we find a statement that describes the chief purpose which Paul's argument has been moving towards. The Scripture is useful for these four things, he says, so that the man of God may be complete, having been equipped for every good work. This is one of the Bible's chief purposes, to fully equip and prepare God's people to do good works. By man of God, Paul had Timothy in mind, but there's no doubt that he also intended this to apply to all Christians. For Paul, good works is shorthand for the fruit produced by authentic faith, for the whole of Christian existence within its observable dimension. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that believers have been recreated in Christ to do the good works that God has prepared for them. God has purposed that the lives and actions of his people would be determined by their faith in Jesus and that they would be in accordance with his values and his aims. Friends, the holy scriptures are most effective and relevant as the means to accomplishing this end. As we move in, to chapter 4, Paul begins to wrap up the long appeal he has been making to Timothy, his co-worker throughout the book. Again, he's been urging him to follow his example, to remain faithful to the truth and the gospel in the midst of persecution and false teaching. He will now conclude his charge with nine imperatives which, in effect, gather together all of the different concerns he has expressed in this letter. The exhortation that Paul is about to give Timothy here is serious. In fact, it's nearly impossible to overstate the magnitude of what Paul is about to say. Look in your Bibles at verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. The word used here does not describe any command. It describes a a command of intense weight, a solemn charge. It creates a mood that signals mandatory obligation. Paul calls to his side witnesses to the testimony. God the Father and Jesus the Son. All of this signifies that this command Paul is about to give is not simply his own. It is authorized by God himself. So, in light of the fact that the Father and the Son are witness to this charge, and because Jesus is going to one day return, bring his kingdom, and judge all of mankind, what does Paul charge Timothy to do? He commands him in verse 2, preach the word. The word is in reference to the scriptures, or the, the sacred writings which Paul has mentioned before, but it also serves as a label for the gospel itself. The first command here is the rubric for all of the ones that are to follow. Above all else, Timothy is to proclaim the message of Scripture and the gospel. Next, Paul gives directions that will make Timothy's preaching possible and effective. 
He's to be prepared in season and out of season, which means when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient, when it's popular and when it's unpopular. The truth of the gospel is so great, the need for it so urgent, that it must be proclaimed to the church and to the world immediately and persistently. Within his ministry, Timothy is also to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. His preaching should involve reproving or convicting. Just as the scripture does this, faithful preaching must expose sin and falsehood, and when necessary, it should rebuke it. Alongside this, though, faithful preaching must also exhort the hearers, teaching and encouraging them, pushing them forward in faith and maturity. All of this is to be done, Paul says, with complete patience and careful instruction. Why is Timothy to be diligent in preaching the word? If you look at verses 3 and 4, Paul states his reasoning. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and instead will wander off into myths. Here Paul describes a time that will come indeed that has already arrived in which people will be bored with sound teaching. They will no longer put up with what is true. Paul uses a really interesting word picture here to describe these people. He says they will have itching ears. That is to say they will have a curiosity and a deep craving for something new, and in order to scratch this itch, they will stockpile for themselves teachers who tell them only what they want to hear. In doing so, they turn their ears away from the truth of the gospel as it is declared in the scriptures. They will abandon the faith in those who represent it. In place of the truth, they will chase after myths that are utterly untrue and deceitful. It's for these reasons that Paul commands Timothy to continue in the truth and to preach it continually. In verse 5, he wraps up his exhortation to his co-worker. Unlike those who abandon the truth, Timothy is to be sober-minded or to be self-controlled in all that he does. Following the example of Paul and of the Lord Jesus, he is to endure suffering. He is to do the work of an evangelist, that is, one who proclaims the gospel. This good news must remain at the heart of all that he does. Finally, Timothy must fulfill his ministry. That is, he must accomplish the goals he has set out to achieve. He must execute all of the obligations contained within Paul's commission to him. In the following verses, 6 through 8, which we are not going to go into, but uh, They're helpful because Paul shows that he himself has fulfilled his own ministry, and he urges Timothy to follow this pattern. Okay, so now, hopefully we have an idea what the passage means. I've emphasized that the main point is God's divinely inspired word is sufficient for providing what we need to endure suffering, to live righteously, and to know what is true. We can now walk back through passage, respond to its truths, apply it to our lives, especially within the context of the series Transformed, Not Conformed. This passage began with a focus on suffering. In verse 12, Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, it's natural for most of us today as we're sitting here, 2019, in the United States to wonder, will this happen to me? 
most of us probably assume that we won't face persecution, at least not like they did in the Bible or in other parts of the world. So is this verse true for us? One scholar, Robert Yarbrough, says this, quote, 2 Timothy 3.12 is certainly not a projection that every true Christian will suffer martyrdom, but rather recognition that faithful servants of Christ will undergo testing and trials in the course of their daily duties that will often be costly to what they hold dear. If someone truly desires to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, he continues, it is unlikely that there is any setting in the world today where such discipleship commitment will not result in social disapproval, perhaps family friction, and quite possibly painful complications involving matters like relationships, career opportunities, professional prospects, financial fortunes, and increasingly criminal prosecution. So I ask you, do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus such that you are prepared and willing to suffer and be persecuted for it? As we seek not to be conformed to the world, but instead transformed, opportunities to compromise will come, especially if faithfulness means enduring suffering and persecution. Thankfully, God has not left us alone in this. We have his spirit, we have his people, And we have his word. This passage tells us that with God's word, we have everything that we need to endure and overcome any trial that we might face on this earth. The Bible is so precious. This is not just some book. I'm holding in my hands the very words of God. I pray that as a church, we would be gripped by this reality. We possess God's word in our own language, and it's so accessible to us. Why do we seemingly lose sight of this so easily? Are you ever simply taken aback by the nature of what it is that we've received in the Bible? So often, in fact, I hear Christians lament that they are too busy to read the Bible. This is nothing but conformity to the world. In fact, I don't buy the excuse at all that any one of us is too busy to read the Bible. If we truly comprehend what it is that we have in the Scriptures, we would never say, sorry, God, I'm too busy to read your Word. I won't pretend to know what it's like to have to balance a career, a marriage, finances, children, etc., all while still trying to make time in your day to read God's Word. But I really do want to confront the attitude that we simply don't have time to sit and read the words of the creator of the universe. I will be the first to admit that I waste so much time every single day doing things that could and probably should be replaced with time in the scriptures. For instance, when I wake up each morning, on my nightstand is my phone and my Bible. Why do I so often open up Facebook and Instagram before I open up the words of God? As I've spent time preparing for this sermon, I've been convicted of the ways in which I neglect God's word, and I want to challenge you to think deeply about the ways that you might be neglecting God's word as well. We live in a day that provides an unprecedented level of access to the Scriptures. In fact, never before in history has it been so easy to engage the Word of God. Brainstorm things that you can cut out, 
ways that you can make extended time in Scripture a priority. I urge you to make time to get into God's Word every single day. Again, I know life is crazy and people are busy, but there has to be something in your day that you could sacrifice and cut out in order to make time to sit and read and hear from the God of all creation, the God who is delighted to save you, the God who has revealed himself to us in this book. Maybe it's in the morning with your cup of coffee or at night before you go to bed. Instead of watching one more show on Netflix or staying out an extra hour with your friends, make time for studying the scriptures. I think it's important to actually read but maybe it's helpful for you to listen to an audio Bible as you make the commute to work or as you're at the gym working out. I would challenge all of you to consistently use a physical Bible, one that has pages and paper and you can write in and, uh, and use, not that's on your phone or tablet. If you don't have one, we have, one, have many that we would love for you to take. Another important application of this passage is in regards to the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. So building off of the foundation of Scripture's inspiration, Paul states in verse 17 that uh, the, the Bible is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully qualified, having been equipped for every good work. What does it not say? It does not say that the Bible leaves us partially complete or nearly equipped, it says that God's word is sufficient for making us fully equipped for living a life in godliness. We do not need anything else. Because it is the word of God himself, scripture alone is authoritative in all areas of our life. Unfortunately, practical denials of this abound in modern evangelicalism, how many books or modern devotionals are there that have been written by people who like the Bible, but they find it a bit boring. For them, the Bible is lacking in some way. It's not completely relevant to their own lives. They think they've exhausted all that it has to offer. They want to hear from God on their own. What foolishness. If you want to hear from God, read the Bible. Do you want to hear God speak audibly? then read your Bible out loud. <laughs> Not only are the scriptures sufficient for equipping Christians for life and godliness, they are also necessary. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, the Bible must have authority over your life because of its nature as divinely inspired or God-breathed. Again, these are not simply the words of men. These are the words of God in the Bible our Creator has revealed Himself supremely and uniquely, unlike anything else in all of existence. The only way to know about Jesus Christ and the gospel is through God's Word in the Scriptures. It's the only way. There's no other way. There's no substitute for the Bible. No devotionals, no music, no journaling, no community group, no observation of nature or self-help test or no contemplation of deep existential problems can take the place of the Word of God. For believers, Jesus promised that upon his departure, he would give us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with us, to guide us, and to lead us into all truth. 
one of the chief ways that God's Spirit works in the life of a Christian is through the Spirit-inspired scriptures. I've emphasized Paul's claim that the Bible is able to make you fully equipped, qualified, fully qualified, equipped for every good work. What this means is that you cannot expect to be complete or equipped for the Christian life without it, period. It is impossible to mature and grow as a follower of Christ without God's Word. How can you possibly expect to be conformed to the image of Christ if you neglect one of the primary means that God has given His people to do this? The Scriptures give us the spiritual food that we need to hold fast to Christ and our faith. It is foolish to think that you can survive in this world without it. It's ridiculous to believe that you can become more like Jesus and withstand sin and temptation without the Word of God. I've heard so many people say, I love Jesus, but the Bible's not for me. This is absurd. Jesus himself said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How are you going to do this if you don't know what he said? Because it is the Scriptures alone which are able to equip us for doing the work of the kingdom and for living righteously, we at Harvest are committed to the Bible. As a church, we are dedicated to living in submission to God's Word, and when we gather together each Lord's Day, we want our worship to be centered around the Scriptures. This is why together we read the Word, we sing the Word, and hear the Word. In the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, we see the Word, and we also preach the Word. Why, you might wonder, do we devote the majority of our time each Sunday to hearing one man get up front and preach from the Scriptures? We preach the Word because of what it is and because of what it does. It is the Word of God, His inspired revelation given to us, and what it does is equip us for good works and make us more like Christ. Here's what John Piper says about preaching. Quote, preaching itself is worship and is appointed by God to awaken and intensify worship. It does this by heralding the reality communicated through the words of Scripture, which was written to create and sustain worship. This is why we preach. By God's grace, he uses faithful preaching to nourish and to feed his people. Another way in which he uses it is to guard against false teaching. False teaching was prominent in Timothy's setting, as we've seen, and it was one of the reasons that Paul encouraged Timothy to preach the word and to continue in what he had learned. Though we live in a completely different time and place, Paul's words are just as true today, for our age is rife with false teaching. One of the most dangerous and abounding heresies today is what is known as the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel or the word of faith movement. In recent decades, this teaching has become abundant in America. It's infiltrated churches all over the world. This false gospel promises that faith in Jesus will result in material wealth, material prosperity, and physical healing and well-being. If you believe in Jesus, they say, you will Live a prosperous life. You'll live your best life now. Jesus wants you to be healthy and happy and have lots of money. 
Recently, we recommended to you the documentary American Gospel, and we showed it here over the course of two Sunday evenings. Uh, the film spends two hours proclaiming the biblical gospel and exposing the heretical doctrine of popular false teachers like Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Bill Johnson, Todd White, Joel Osteen, and many others. I commend it highly to you. The problem with this false gospel and with every other false, false teaching known to man is that it stands in contrast to God's eternal word. It does not lead to the renewal of our mind in conformity to Christ. We must be on guard against false, false doctrine, and if we are to know what is false, we must actually know what is true. We must be so well-versed in the truth of God's word, so saturated in the real gospel, that anything in contradiction to it immediately sounds the alarm. My friends, theology matters. Theology is simply knowing about God, knowing God. One of the fundamental interests of Paul within his letters to Timothy is on sound doctrine. The word sound is used frequently to describe physical health. In fact, if you're reading the SV in verse 3, it has a footnote saying that the word could be translated as healthy. The true gospel, theology that is in line with the scriptures is sound. It is positively health-producing. On the other hand, false doctrines are infectious. They're diseased and capable of destroying the spiritual health of those who come under its influence. It's imperative that both individually and corporately we remain rooted in the Bible. If we were to have any hope of being transformed, of having our minds renewed, of knowing the will of the Lord, it's going to be by God's work in us through the Scriptures. In our present age, there are endless ideologies and worldviews and perspectives competing for a claim on our lives. We will only see ourselves rightly if we see ourselves as a part of the one true story. This is the one revealed to us in the Bible. We can't just read the Bible once and check it off the list if we are not regularly, dare I say, daily, having our minds renewed by the truth of God's word, word we will look more like the world and less like Jesus. As the church of Christ, we have been entrusted with the true gospel. It's sacred, it's holy, and thus it's imperative that we are constantly immersed in it. As a church, it's vital that we support and encourage one another in our devotion to the scriptures. Here at Harvest, we hope to help motivate this by offering reading plans and resources and Bible studies. We have a group that meets here on Sunday mornings before the service. We have a men's Bible study that meets weekly on Wednesdays at Peter Kobe's house. The women will be starting up again in the fall. I'm also excited to announce that uh, Pastor Gary and I have been working very hard on a class that is going to go through the book of Revelation, which will be beginning in September. More details to come. If you want more info on any of this, Talk to someone, talk to a pastor or a staff member. Maybe you just want to start reading the Bible, but you don't even know where to begin. Find someone who will read with you and will encourage you and will motivate you. If you need resources, talk to, to me or to someone on staff. We will help point you in the right direction. I want to close with a personal story. A couple of years ago, I had the incredible opportunity to go on a trip to Israel through my school, Multnomah University, there were 40 other Multnomah students on the trip, and uh, one of them was a girl named Anna. 
She was a year older than me. She was captain of the basketball team, and she was well-known around campus for her love and, and genuine kindness towards, towards others. Um, overall, the experience in the lands of the Bible in, in Israel was in, unforgettable. If you want to know more, come talk to me sometime. I'd love to, to talk about it. Um, it was great to get to know other students like, like Anna. The next semester, we had a reunion party one day where we got together and we reminisced and looked at photos and told stories, and uh, it was a great time. The very next day, I remember making the commute to campus and meeting a friend in the library who immediately asked if I had heard the news. What news? Anna had been in a car accident on her way to morning practice. She was hit head-on by a drunk driver on the highway. He was in a stolen car, and he left the scene after hitting her. He left her for dead. By God's grace, Anna did not die, but she got about as close as you can get. In her recovery, she's had to learn, uh, learn again how to walk, talk, and eat. After coming out of a coma, before she could talk, she communicated through a whiteboard. I want to pause and ask you to think for a moment. If you had been in this situation and you just now had the opportunity to communicate to your friends or your loved ones or your spouse or your children, what would you ask for now? What would you try and say? Here's what Anna did. She wrote down a Bible verse. She wanted someone to read it to her. So her brother opened up his Bible and read to her from the Word of God. Oh, that the Scriptures would be this precious to us. Oh, that we would love God's Word like this. Anna embodied so perfectly the words of the psalmist who says that the Word of God is more precious than gold, even much pure gold, sweeter than honey, honey from the comb. In the Scriptures, we have a gift that is infinitely valuable. In the scriptures, we have the words of life. God's divinely inspired word is sufficient for providing what we need to endure persecution, to live righteously, and to know what is true. So it is in light of this, and in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, that I solemnly charge you, read the word. Let's pray. God of truth, we thank you for your beautiful word, the holy scriptures. Help us, O Lord, to see them rightly. Would our hearts be penetrated by the gravity of what it is that we have in these God-breathed writings? Would you give us a never-ending desire for your word so that each day we long for it? Grant us, gracious Father, to learn more of you through it. Enable us to explore all the truths of the Bible, to love them, embrace them, and engraft them into our lives. By your word, would you, Lord, transform us, renew our minds, and cause us to become more like your Son. Glorify yourself through us, we pray. Amen.